The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Well, this morning we're going to begin, as I just prayed a moment ago, an incredible journey through what I believe is the hardest book in the Bible to interpret properly with a a high level of certainty. But I also think it's a book that will reward careful study. And as you heard Darcy say, there's a, a, a promise of blessing to anyone who reads aloud and who studies and takes to heart the messages of the book. Of Revelation, So it's with some excitement and trepidation that we begin uh, this study. Someone asked me this morning how many weeks or months or years that we would be in this. I have absolutely no idea. Nor do I have any idea what I'll do with this or that or the other specific passage in Revelation. I'm counting on God to give me time and insight. But I don't have to worry about that this morning. Just Revelation chapter 1. A few weeks ago in our study in the book of Isaiah, we came across an incredible passage in Isaiah 64, verse 1. And verse 1 of Isaiah 64, uh, Isaiah the prophet cries aloud and says, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. And I remember when I preached that passage to you, that word rend is very powerful to me. It gives a sense of some kind of a, a veil or a curtain or something around us all the time. And there's some kind of reality on the other side of that. And different people deal with that idea in different ways. Like Buddhists, for example, who are seeking enlightenment, basically say that this physical world isn't even real. It's an illusion. And all that really matters is the world of enlightenment and moving on. We Christians don't say that. We believe that this physical world is real and really matters. But yet, we believe that there's a world beyond this this veil, beyond the curtain. Atheistic scientists, philosophical materialists, people like Carl Sagan would say something like this about the cosmos. That the cosmos is all that there ever has been, is now, or ever will be. Well, we as Christians don't believe that. We believe that there's an invisible spiritual world. We are instructed in the book of Hebrews. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen is not made out of what was visible. So the invisible realm preceded the visible realm. But we know that only by faith. Science won't tell us that. We're not like the occultic you know, mediums and spiritists that are seeking contact with the spiritual world, the, the world of the dead in some very unhealthy and sick sort of way. We're not that either. But we believe, instructed by Scripture, that there is a universe, so a world of reality beyond what we can see with our eyes. And so Isaiah said, oh, that you would rend the heavens, that you would create some kind of a tear. Now, when I preached that text, I talked about, in the New Testament, indications of that, that we saw in the life of Jesus. How it says in Mark's Gospel, when Jesus was baptized, the heavens were torn open. That's the actual verb used. And the Holy Spirit descended like a dove. Or again, when Jesus ascended, and I'm going to mention this text again in Acts chapter 1, but he ascended and went higher and higher, and a cloud hid him from their sight. And he passed over, in the book of Hebrews it says, he passed through the heavens, passed through the heavenly realms, and and sits at the right hand of Almighty God, far above all heavenly realms. Or, Or again... When Stephen was being martyred, when he was being stoned to death at the end of Acts 7, at the end of that time when he was just about to die, when they were just about to attack him with stones, he said, look, I see heaven open and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And so all of these give us an indication. And so also this very same book of Revelation. We're going to have a revelation of an invisible world as we study this. It's a a vision of the present surrounding spiritual world. And it's a vision of the coming future world as planned by the sovereign power of God that will certainly come. And it's a vision that we wouldn't have in this way in any other book of the Bible or any other way. And it is up to us to walk wisely by this unveiled light. It says in 2 Peter 3... 
Peter tells us that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire. And the elements are going to melt in the heat. And everything will be laid, laid bare. And he says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? There's an ethical side to this. This is the walking wisely based on this uh, unveiled light. Well, what kind of people ought you to be? Well, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. Which again, as I've mentioned that passage numerous times, to me that's the internal journey of holiness. You ought to live godly, holy, upright lives, internal journey. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming by evangelism and by missions, that's that external journey. That's the kind of life we should live as a result of the study we're about to do. In the book of Revelation. So we come to the beginning. Revelation 1 chapter 1. And right from the start we have this word revelation. And it fits into the comments that I've been making uh, from the beginning of this message. The word revelation um, really is very closely related in the English. Uh, to the Greek word apokalupsis which means unveiling. A sense of the pulling back of a veil or of a curtain to show us something that we wouldn't have seen any other way. That's what the word means. It's an unveiling. So fundamental then to our Christian faith is the idea that secrets, invisible spiritual things, are revealed to us by Almighty God. And that we wouldn't know them any other way. So Christianity is not something we make up. Its origin is not in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's how we know about this. We wouldn't know anything about these things if God hadn't revealed them. And we can know nothing for certain, nothing about the future. Except that God reveals it. Nothing. But God is a God who does in fact reveal the future. He does tell us things to come. Now this unveiling, this pulling back, this apocalypsis... Is, ...is pulled back to show us two things. First and foremost, to show us Christ. That's what we get right away. Look at Revelation 1.1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. In other words, we could never fully know Christ as God wants us to know Him... Apart from this book of Revelation. There are some aspects to him, to his person, and to his ministry and to his future that we would never know. Except through this book of Revelation. Secondly, what is revealed is the future. Right here from the start. He gave him this revelation to show his servants what must soon take place. Now that word must means this is absolutely certainly going to happen. Nothing can change the plans of God. And it must soon take place. Now, we have to learn what this word soon means. Again and again, in the book of Revelation, Jesus says, I am coming soon. Revelation 3.11, he says, I'm coming soon. Hold fast to what you have. Uh, and then three times in the final chapter, Revelation 22.7, Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And then Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming soon. My reward is with me and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. And then finally, Revelation twenty two twenty. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So four times Jesus says he's coming soon. And yet we all know it's been 2,000 years since... Since uh, Christ ascended from earth. It's been 20 centuries approximately since this book of Revelation was, was written. Now we need to know God's time and our time are different. Second uh, Peter 3, 8 and 9 says, With the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise. So some understand slowness. So we just have to understand in light of eternity the soon will make perfect sense to us. But for us in space and time now, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems like the days go by so slowly, but they really don't. Now, who does the revealing of Christ and of the future? Look again at verse 1. It says, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. So God, meaning God the Father, gave the book of Revelation to Jesus. He gave it to Jesus. And he gave it about Jesus. So effectively, Jesus, by the will of the Father, is revealing himself to us. God the Father reveals God the Son to us. This is the very thing uh, that Jesus said was true. In Matthew eleven twenty seven. 27, he says, no one knows the Son except the Father. 
And again in John 12, 49, Jesus said, I did not speak of my own accord, but the Father who sent me commanded me what to say and how to say it. So everything Jesus said on earth, everything that he's communicated through the apostles, he's communicated under the authority of his Father. It was his Father who told him what to say and how to say it. So we get this kind of heavenly chain of command here. Look at verses 1 and 2 and read it, read it through with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John who testifies to everything he saw. That is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. So God gave this book of revelation, the contents of these 22 chapters, he gave this to Jesus. Jesus committed it, it seemed, to an angel. Uh, the angel carried it in some way to John and then John wrote it down for God's servants to read. That's us. That's the relay race of Revelation here. Now the book of Revelation, as I've said, unveils an invisible spiritual world. The present invisible spiritual world contains spiritual beings that we wouldn't know anything about except that the Bible tells us about them. Angels. And so we have this idea of angels, spiritual beings, who play, who will play a huge role in the book of Revelation. Angels are actually mentioned 81 times in the book of Revelation. Now the book of Hebrews tells us what their role is to us. Are not, Hebrews 1.14, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So the angels are here to serve us, the redeemed, who are going to inherit salvation. And it seems that angels are able to carry prophetic messages to the human messengers, the mouthpieces, who are going to get it out to the world. Now this is something we wouldn't really know except the New Testament taught it to us. But the laws of Moses were entrusted to Moses by angelic messengers. It's taught twice in the New Testament. Uh, In Acts 7.53, Stephen said the law was put into effect through angels. And again, in Galatians 3.19, it says the law was put into effect through angels by a mediator. So angels, in some mysterious way, carry the message down from heaven to earth. You see this absolutely openly acted out in the book of Daniel. They carry messages to the prophets and to the apostles. Now, in the book of Revelation, angels are going to take a very active role in bringing the decrees of heaven down to planet earth. Angels are going to sound trumpets that will initiate judgments on earth. Angels are going to pour out bowls that will result in judgments on earth. Angels will swing sickles that will harvest uh, planet earth. An angel will hand to John a scroll that he will eat. Angels will observe and celebrate what's going on in the unfolding events of planet earth. And they're going to celebrate saying, hallelujah, hallelujah. So they're intensely interested in what's happening, unfolding in this drama of redemptive history. Angels will sometimes be John's tour guide through these prophetic visions, like in Revelation 17. An angel will carry John away in the spirit and he will show him the great whore of Babylon. And then later in Revelation 21, an angel will carry John away in the spirit and show him the beautiful bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven. And so angels are actively involved in this. So we should just stand in awe in a marvelous way at this invisible spiritual world that's around us. That we wouldn't even know existed. If all we were were scientific, atheistic, materialistic people, we would deny the reality of this invisible spiritual world. But as believers in Christ, we think it's real. We also see right here at the beginning the humility of John. He calls himself a bond slave, literally a bond slave of Christ. And he calls all the people of God who are the intended recipients of this book of Revelation also bond slaves or servants of Christ. So it's a very humbling thing. I think if you read the book of Revelation rightly, it's going to humble you. You're, you're going to be put in your, in your place. You're going to realize that at best, you are part of a multitude greater than anyone can count from every tribe, language, people, and nation redeemed by the blood of Christ. And you are in a very healthy way going to shrink in your own estimation. You're going to realize you're part of a vast work of salvation that God is doing. That's a very good thing, isn't it? And you're going to see the incredible powers of the demonic world, the satanic world. And realize, as as Luther said, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. There's no way we could fight Satan. There's no way we were strong enough to fight the beast, the Antichrist. If we were left to our own devices, we would be destroyed. And even more, we're going to have a sense of the greatness of the majesty of God 
of his infinite power, of the majesty and glory of his throne through this book of Revelation. It's very humbling. And so we have also, and I've mentioned it, the blessings on the book of Revelation. Look again at verse 3. Blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy. So Darcy, I don't know where you are, but you already have a blessing. Because you got up and read, read aloud the words of this prophecy. So if any of you want a blessing from God today, go home and read aloud the words of Revelation 1. God promises a blessing on his servants if they will just read the words of this prophecy. But even more, blessed are those who hear it and take to heart what is written in it. Because the time is near. So we're not alone to know the words of the book of Revelation, to read them. But we are to take to heart what is written. We are to be obedient. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful. 2 Timothy 3.16. But not all scripture has the same powerful impact on the human soul. Not every scripture is as impactful, though all scripture is true. And so this book of Revelation is a special, unique book among all the books of the Bible. God has assigned to it a role that he's given to no other book. It gives us insights into the glories of Christ. It gives us insights into the present invisible spiritual realms of angels and demons and departed saints who are worshiping God in heaven. And of course it gives us insights into the future. The coming wrath and the coming glory of the new Jerusalem and the new universe that's coming. Like no other book does. So, God calls on us, his servants, to read the words of this book and take to heart and obey its message. And if, he does, if we do, he will bless us even today. And notice again that he says the time is near. The time is near. Now we get deceived into thinking that we're going to be in this state forever that life is going to go on as it always has it's not the time is near the time for the end is coming it says in James 4 14 what is your life you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes all right so let's look now at verses 4 through 8 the greeting and the doxology I've already laid out the origin of this book of revelations coming from God the Father through the God the Son through the angel through John to us We've got the blessing of this majestic and mysterious book of Revelation. And now he gives us a greeting and for us to give to God a doxology. So the word of greeting is to us and the word of praise is going back up to God. So first the greetings from John and from the Trinity, from the triune God. Verse 4, John to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you. Now John, I believe this is the apostle John, one of the twelve. Others disagree, but this is what I think uh, this is, I think, the best way to read this. So, this is John, one of the twelve. And according to church history, all the other apostles were, were uh, martyred, died an untimely death, died an early death. Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James was the first martyr in the book of Acts, beheaded by Herod. Andrew preached in modern-day Russia and Turkey. He ended up being crucified in Greece. Thomas died in India pierced through with several spears of soldiers who are attacking him. This is all from church, uh, church history, tradition. Philip converted the wife of a Roman proconsul in Asia Minor, and in retaliation, the Roman had him slowly tortured to death. According to church history, the Apostle John is the only one of the twelve not to die a martyr's death, but he was exiled to the island of Patmos. Look at verse 9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So he wrote at the end of the first century, probably in the mid-90s, the final decade of the first century. At that point, the emperor was Domitian, and he had initiated a level of persecution that would become characteristic of the Roman emperors until Constantine. A rhythm and, and cycle of persecution and then relaxation and then more persecution and then relaxation. But it's very much the backdrop of the whole book of Revelation. Of the attack of Satan and his henchmen, his marionettes, you know, his, his ruling elite who do not know Satan's authority over them. But Satan uses them to attack the church. So John was exiled to this tiny island of Patmos. It's a little rocky, deserted island off the coast of modern-day Turkey. It's about 17 square miles in size. That's about one-eighth the size of the county of Durham. So it's a really small place and deserted. John says in verse 9, he was exiled there because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. So this is a regular theme. As the external journey goes on, as the gospel is being preached, 
it's being proclaimed persecution, backlash comes. An attack. And he's there because of that. He says that that persecution is our lot in Christ. And suffering and patient endurance. That belongs to us in Jesus, but also a kingdom and a priestly ministry. And so John's there because of that. Now these, these ideas are going to be a major theme in the book of Revelation. He calls himself a brother and companion in this. This suffering is ours in Christ. This kingdom is ours in Christ. This, this patient endurance is ours in Christ. Now twice in the book of Revelation, I think, John says the phrase, I, John. I think it's kind of amazing. He does it here in verse 9, I, John. And then at the end of the book, in Revelation 22, 8, he says, I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. It's like he can't believe it. It's like, I'm just John. It's just, just me. I'm just an ordinary individual, and God showed me this. He's trying to say, I'm just like you. I'm, I'm a man just like you. I have a nature just like you do. And yet, John, or God poured out all of these things, uh, all of these things to me. And so he's greeting. He says, I, John, I'm greeting you. In verse 4, this letter was addressed first to these seven churches in the province of Asia. Look at verse 4. It says, the seven churches in the province of Asia. It's modern-day Turkey. They're listed in verses 10 and 11. On the Lord's day, I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. These seven churches. Now, archaeologists have settled pretty much with great certainty where they are. And they end up being on what John Stott calls a kind of a circular postal route, shaped a little bit like a fish hook, going from the coastline of Turkey, of Asia Minor, and going inland and curving around like that. And they go in that consecutive order. These were seven real communities, seven real cities or towns, where there were real local churches. They really existed in space and time. Now, John says he was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. So I would think that would be Sunday, the first day of the week, called the Lord's Day because on that day we honor Jesus who is raised from the dead on the first day of the week. And so it points toward that new covenant pattern of worship where we no longer worship on the Sabbath, the seventh day, but we have transitioned over to worship on the first day. John, it seems, we're probably alone, but we don't know that for sure. Alone, but he wants to join in spirit, at least, with his brothers and sisters throughout the world who are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus. So he's in the spirit, and that means controlled by the spirit. He's in the power of the spirit on the Lord's day. So he's filled with the spirit. He's got the fruit of the spirit. But he also is going to have spiritual visions because he is an apostle. And he's commanded by a loud voice behind him to write what he had seen and send it to the churches. And so this entire book of Revelation comes because of his obedience to that command to write. Write down on a scroll what you've seen and send it. And so he begins this epistle, this incredible letter, uh, in the usual way. Grace and peace to you. Paul always starts that way. I love that idea. Grace to you and peace. From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You have that sense of that. We need a river of grace, don't we? Our salvation isn't done yet. And we need God to give us more grace, like it says in the book of James. He gives us more grace. And so we need more grace. And reading this book of Revelation, like all of Paul's epistles, will give us more grace for our salvation race that we're running. Grace and peace to you. And peace comes as a result. Then comes this uh, greeting from the Trinity. Grace and peace is not from John. He's not offering that. But it's from God, Almighty God, the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Although in this, the order is the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. So he says in verse 4 and 5, Grace and peace to you from Him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the seven spirits, or perhaps the sevenfold spirit, before his throne. Verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. So, God the Father is listed first, described as him who is and who was and who is to come. This speaks of the eternality of God. It speaks of the, of the immutability, the unchanging nature of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever, as is said of Jesus. Never changes. He's the one who was, who is, who is to come. He's the eternal being. And then God the Spirit is mentioned next. Interestingly called the seven spirits before his throne. Or perhaps a translation, the sevenfold spirit. Now this image is going to come back in Revelation 4. 
There is a throne depicted with Almighty God seated on it. And there is this seven spirits before the throne. The only way we can know for certain this is the Holy Spirit is because of this doxology here. Or this, uh, not doxology, but this Trinitarian greeting. I can't imagine that some inanimate object would be mentioned in this pattern here. A greeting from the Father and from Jesus and in between the seven spirits. But it's definitely the Holy Spirit. So there's a Trinitarian sense here. Why the seven spirits? I don't really know except that the number seven seems to be the number of completion or perfection as many commentators give us. So the perfect sevenfold spirit of God. And then finally from Jesus Christ. He's described as the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, ruler of the kings of the earth. So first, Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. He was faithful to God the Father who sent him. He was faithful to do everything the Father told him to do. He was faithful to witness to an unbelieving world who killed him because of his witness. He was faithful to stand in front of the Jewish authorities before Annas and Caiaphas. And when charged under oath by the living God to tell the truth. Are you the Christ, the Son of God? He said, I am. He is the faithful witness. Told the truth. And he is the firstborn from the dead. The firstborn we would think in terms of first in preeminence. He's got the, the top role in the household of God. He's the firstborn in rank or or role. He's also called by Paul the first fruits, implying others are going to be raised from the dead. And also, we would think first in sequence. He's the first that was ever resurrected from the dead in a resurrection body that would never die again. No one else has ever uh, received that resurrection body before Jesus. So he is the firstborn from the dead. This idea is going to be so powerful for us as we go forward and the church is suffering and being persecuted and Smyrna is told to hold on and the devil's going to put you in prison. Be faithful unto death. We're told that because we have the victor over death and I'll mention that more in a moment but he's the firstborn from the dead and he is the ruler of the kings of the earth. He is the king over all kings and he is the Lord over all lords. And we give him the preeminence. He, he rules over the Roman Empire. He ruled over the Roman Empire. He rules over every, every potentate and dictator and prime minister and president. Over all human governments. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so the letter is from the triune God through uh, John to all the local churches in all history. In all places and all for all time. Then comes this beautiful doxology. In verse 5 and 6, John in the Spirit on the Lord's Day celebrates his Savior. Whom he loves more at that time than he loved when he first met him. Now next week, God willing, we're going to look at that church at Ephesus that forsook their first love. But John wasn't like that. He loved Jesus more now than he did the day before, the year before. There's an ever-growing love. And you see it in what he says. To him who loved us. And has freed, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And has made us to be a kingdom and priest to serve his God and Father. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. John wrote in his epistle, we love, we love Jesus because he first loved us. And so he's ascribing this whole letter in dedication to Jesus. Do you see it? To him who loves us. And not only that, he has for all time freed us from our sins by his blood. This is the centerpiece of the gospel. By his blood atonement, by his shedding his blood on the cross, he has set us free from sin and death and hell and Satan's kingdom. He has broken the chains. He has set us free from our sins by his blood. All these many years later, he just still melts. He was there and he watched after Jesus was dead. How a Roman soldier who executed him shoved a spear up into his side and pulled it out. And there was a flow of blood and water. Absolute proof that his heart had, had failed and that he was dead. And he gives testimony in John 19. He said, the one who was there saw it and bears witness. He shed his blood for us to death that we might be forgiven of our sins. And he dedicates this book, John does, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. And now that we're free, we are enabled to serve our God and Father. We are a kingdom 
and we are priests to serve him. So we are the kingdom of God. The kingdom is made up not of territories. Jesus isn't trying to conquer back North Africa from the Muslims. He's not trying to conquer territory in China from the communists. He's not trying to... He's going after people. We are the kingdom. The elect in every tribe, language, people, and nation, in every generation. We are the kingdom. And he has made us to be a kingdom. And priests to serve our God. We have a priestly ministry. Not in the pattern of the Levitical priesthood back in the Old Testament who are offering up animal sacrifices and shedding blood. We're not, that time is done. That's obsolete. It's gone. We now offer sacrifices of praise and worship, don't we? We offer ourselves to God as a fragrant offering. We present our bodies as living sacrifices to God. We are a kingdom and priests, or perhaps even a kingdom of priests, to serve our God and Father. Now in verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierce him, and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be. Amen. I love how he says this in verse 7, behold. Now you can't see it with your eyes, but by faith, with eyes of faith, just see him coming with the clouds. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes, all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. So shall it be, amen. Now this is the second coming of Christ, which is essential to the whole book. And it's going to come. Second coming of Christ is established again and again throughout the New Testament. My favorite is in Acts chapter 1. I already alluded to it once, but you know how he brings them out of Jerusalem and they go to the Mount of Olives. In Acts 1.8 Jesus says his final words in the book of Acts to his disciples right before his ascension. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. And then in verses 9 through 11 it says, After he said this he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And they were looking intently into the sky as he was going. And suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus, who has been taken from you into heaven, will come back in the same way you've seen him taken into heaven. That's the second coming of Christ. And so this is the same thing. He is coming. He's coming back with the clouds, just like he left. He's coming back with the clouds. And every eye will see him. Everybody's going to see him. The same clouds that covered him in his ascension, they'll peel back and reveal him in his coming. And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That coming will not be secret. It will not be hidden. As lightning that flashes in the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Every eye will see him. No faith needed, no faith required. There's faith needed now. To believe that what I'm saying will happen, you need faith now, today. But you will not need faith on that day because you will just look up to the clouds and you'll see it with your own eyes. And it says, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. That refers to his enemies who slaughtered him, who killed him. So those who even in their hearts would kill him still. They will see him. And so that means every body on the face of the earth, every atheist that denies and doesn't believe in any spiritual thing, they won't have a, have a choice. They're going to see him in the clouds. They can be definitely scientists at that point and use their empirical evidence to see Jesus. No faith required. The Buddhists will cease their search for enlightenment. It will be over at that moment. It's going to be over for for all of the secular humanists, for all of the materialistic businessmen whose God is their stomach. It, it will be over for all of the Muslims, both the kind of domesticated Western intellectual peace-loving type Muslims in the West and the fire-breathing jihadists that are in caves in Afghanistan. They will all see him with their own eyes. And all the peoples, the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Why is that? Because it's the end has come. The wrath has come. Judgment day is here. And we're going to see this again with the breaking open of the seventh seal. 
or the sixth seal. In Revelation 6, 15 through 17, it says, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, every slave and every free man hid in caves among the rocks of the mountains, and they called to the mountains and to the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? So every eye is going to see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And John adds these words, so shall it be. Amen. I assent to it. I want it to happen. I'm yearning for it because God wills that it happen. Then in verse 8, God the Father declares himself. This is God the Father speaking these words. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the Lord God. This is the Almighty One. This is God the Father. The Alpha and the Omega means history was his idea from beginning to end. He wrote it with his own mind. And he initiated it on the Alpha Day. And he has controlled every letter of history. And he will do so until the Omega Day, the final day. He is history. God the Father. And he's ruling over all of these things. He is the eternal, unchanging God. And he is omnipotent, ruling over all things. All right, verses 1 through 8. Now you're wondering, how in the world am I getting through 9 through 20 the rest of the way? I don't know, but let's just keep going. We'll see how far we get. The rest of the chapter depicts John's encounter with the resurrected, glorified Christ in a very powerful vision. Look at verses 9 through 11. These are John's circumstances. We've already discussed it briefly. I don't have to go back to it or say much. It just says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit. And I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So there he is in, in Patmos, as we said, in the spirit on the Lord's day. And he hears a mighty voice behind him like a trumpet. Now, a trumpet is loud and clear. In the Old Testament, it was used for calling warriors to battle. Paul says that the trumpet sounds an uncertain call. Who will follow it into battle, right? Or it was used to assemble the nation of Israel together at the Feast of Trumpets, and they would come together. Or it came with the sound of Sinai, the first trumpet blast, I think, in the Bibles at Mount Sinai, when a very loud trumpet blast, it seems, coming from the heavenly realms, assembled the nation of Israel. And God descended in fire on Mount Sinai and the ground beneath their feet shook. So it's a loud kind of terrifying thing. And the second coming is going to come when Jesus descends in second coming glory. He's going to come with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise. So it's a a loud voice like a trumpet. And why was the voice behind him? I don't know. But I have an idea. Here's a thought. He's facing one way, and God is the other way. And so to some degree, there's like a humility at recognizing, I need to turn to where God is and what Christ is doing. We're all off to some degree. And the idea is, I had to turn around to get a look at Jesus. That's my idea. And that's a picture of repentance. All of us need to be adjusted in our perspective. Let's put it that way. And the book of Revelation will adjust everyone's perspective. Even the one who wrote it. That's my idea. So what did he see when he turned around? Verses 12 through 16. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like a son of man. Dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest and his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. And his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came sharp, a sharp double-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So we have first in this prophetic visionary image... Seven golden lampstands. So I picture free-standing like lampstands, like going like maybe my height, something like that. They're, they're standing kind of independent from each other. 
Because it says that Jesus is among the lampstands. Literally kind of in the midst of the lampstands. So if it's like a menorah, I don't know how you could do that. So I think they're kind of in some ways separated from each other. If you could picture it like that. And these lampstands are made of gold signifying incredible worth and value. I would say first to Jesus, to God. They have value, they have worth. And they are lampstands giving off light to the surrounding world. So they're pictures of the churches. We know that they are the seven churches. And it reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. You are the light of the world. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead they put it up on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way let your light shine before Men, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father who is in heaven. So we are to be, in Jesus, the light of the world. So that's the image. Now, in the midst of of these seven golden lampstands, walking through them, we have one like a son of man. This is directly connected with the awesome vision of Daniel in Daniel 7. In Daniel 7, the Almighty God is seated on his throne... And in Daniel 7, Almighty God has a head and hair white like wool. And he's sitting on a throne, and from that throne is a river of fire in Daniel 7. And a hundred million angels around him. Daniel 7. And suddenly, into the presence of the Ancient of Days, that's God the Father in Daniel 7, into that presence comes one like a son of man. He is human, one like a son of man. But it says in Daniel 7, he approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence, this Son of Man. And he, the Son of Man, was given authority and glory and sovereign power. And all peoples and nations and men of every language worshipped him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. This is Jesus, this Son of Man. And he receives from his father the world, really. All power and authority has been given to him by God the Father. And all people's nations and many of every language are going to worship him. That's the son of man. But look how he's dressed. He's dressed like a priest. Fully human, fully divine. He comes and he's walking through the seven golden lampstand. And he has this, this robe, verse 13, reaching down to his feet. And he's got this golden sash around his chest. He's dressed like a priest. So this is a picture of the priestly ministry of Jesus. He's moving through the local churches. And and his appearance is amazing. You don't picture Jesus this way. But look at verse 14. His head and hair were white like wool. As white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet was like bronze glowing in a furnace. And his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. So it's like the, the fa- God the Father's image of, of white hair uh, is given over... To Jesus here. So we have amazingly the wisdom of age in Jesus, coupled with the vigor and power of youth. So he's he's the ancient of days and has infinite age and infinite wisdom, but he's also vigorous to act. He's going to move out vigorously. It's an interesting picture that we have of Jesus. And all of those godlike attributes are given, given to him. So he has perfect holiness, limitless energy. He is old, vastly older than you can possibly imagine. But he's also young in terms of vigor and energy, more energetic than you can possibly imagine. And out of his mouth, he says his voice is like the sound of rushing waters. I picture that like if you've ever been to like the Niagara Falls or some big falls and you can barely hear yourself think. And so there's this awesome power that comes whenever he speaks. It's like the sound of rushing waters. And out of his mouth comes a sharp double-edged sword. The word of God, Hebrews 4.12, is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's able to penetrate and to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so Jesus' sharp double-edged sword has a healing effect on the church and a slaughtering effect on his enemies. And so by his word, the church is is purified of evil. Like a scalpel cutting out a tumor out of the heart of the church, out of the heart of the people. He is purifying. He is the the great, great physician and he's cleansing his churches of sin. 
But then at the end of the book, he's going to come and with the sword coming out of his mouth, he's going to slaughter his enemies. So this is just the power of the word of Christ. And John also sees Jesus in his right hand holding seven stars. Now the seven stars represent the angels or messengers of the seven churches. I think that probably the the preachers or pastors or elders perhaps of that. There are lots of different interpretations for that. But in some ways there's an intimate connection between the star and the lampstand. And he's got in his right hand these seven stars. He's holding them. And this is a picture of his ownership. He owns them. It's a picture of his authority. He has the right to hold them and to command them. They are his servants. So he's holding on to them. But it's also beautifully a picture of power and protection. No one, John 10, is able to snatch them out of Jesus' hand. And so it's security, protection, ownership. The seven stars in his right hand. I also like Isaiah 49, 16. Friends, I can't get away from Isaiah. I hope that's okay. We started with Isaiah. And we're going to keep thinking about Isaiah. But it's Isaiah 49, 16. It says, behold, I have engraved you in the palm of my hand. And you get the idea of the right hand. So that's a sense of intimacy and access for the church as well. We can get close to Jesus. Well, look at his reaction in verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is almost the same as Daniel's reaction every time one of these angels showed up and gave him uh, some kind of revelation. He'd just fall down and, like he was dead. It was also his reaction with Peter and James on the Mount of Transfiguration when Jesus gets, gets a little more glorious, a little more radiant, and his, and his face is shining like, like the sun, and the three of them fall down as though they're dead. And then you know what happened on the Mount of Transfiguration? Jesus came and touched them with his right hand. He does the same thing here. He comes and touches John with his right hand. He placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. So we have the tenderness of Jesus' touch. Jesus loved to heal people by touching them. The leper, he touched the leper. Peter's mother-in-law, he touched her and the fever left her. Jesus touches people and they get healed. So we have that sense of that tender touch. And he says, I'm the first and the last. It's like I'm the Alpha and the Omega. Just like the Father. He is the beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. First and last. He is God. He controls history. And he says, I was dead. The Father can't say that. That's unique to Jesus and not the Spirit. But the second person in the Trinity, I was dead. John, you saw that water and blood mingled, flowed out of my side. I was dead. But behold, don't you love that? I am alive. And I'm alive forever and ever. I can never die again. Romans 6, 9, it says, For we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. And also, he said in John 14, Because I live, what? You also will live. There's going to come a day that we will be able to say, I was dead. And behold, I'm alive forever and ever in Christ. So he says, and, and then he says, I hold the keys of death and Hades. I hold the keys. I'm in charge of death. I rule over death. Death doesn't rule over me. I rule over death. And Hades is the underworld, the grave. I am able to rule over these things. Hold on to that as we see death running amok in this book. One angel pours out his bowl and on, the, on the fresh water and a third of humanity dies. Billions of people. Jesus is in charge of death and Hades. Now, John's mission in verse 19, he says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. One commentator said this is like a three-part outline of the whole book of Revelation. I think that's fine. What you have seen is the picture of Jesus. What is now are the seven churches. We'll begin looking at them next week, God willing. And what will be yet to come, that's the rest of the book. So, in this vision, we have revealed to us by God the Father the greatness of Jesus Christ in his resurrection glory, walking among the local churches, ministering to each one, trimming the wicks, keeping the fire burning, protecting the fire of each of these churches as they witness to their surrounding community, rebuking them, correcting them, speaking to them, ministering to them. Jesus, our great high priest, caring directly for every local church in the world. All right, quickly, applications. Number one, stand in awe at the greatness of God and of Christ. If you can't just have a feeling of awe and wonder, just even at Revelation 1, ask God to soften your heart. It's amazing how 
hard our hearts can get. We need to melt. We need to tremble at God's word. We need to be willing to fall down as John did, reading these things. By this amazing book, we're going to see into an invisible spiritual world. And that light is going to be amazing for us. Secondly, realize the greatness of Christ's triumph over death. Meditate on Jesus' statement, I hold the keys of death in Hades. Don't fear death. Don't fear death. Paul says, for me, it's better by far to die and be with Christ. We're too afraid of what will happen to us in this world. Jesus holds the key of, of, of death, triumph over death. Thirdly, tremble before him in his power and his holiness. He is radiant and shining and holy. And we should be trembling before him and yearning to walk wisely in light of this. And as I've already said, I just want to say to any of you who are unregenerate, come to Christ. Jesus has freed us from our sins by his blood. This is the atoning sacrifice. The only hope that you or any of us have. Repent and trust in Christ while there's still time. Every eye is going to see him in his second coming glory. See him now by faith and he will forgive you of all your sins. And what we need to do as a church, we need to be more faithful in witnessing and taking this message. Again and again, he's going to call on us to witness and to share these things. These seven churches that we're going to look at over the next number of weeks. These seven churches, each one of them is called on to shine in its community for Christ. So we have to be willing to suffer for Christ. It is our lot to share in Christ's sufferings. And finally, increase your expectancy in the second coming of Christ. Jesus said, amen, come Lord Jesus, right? Even so, come. Increase your expectancy of the second coming of Christ. Close with me in prayer. Father, we thank you for the things that we have learned in Revelation 1. What an incredible book this is. What an incredible vision it gives us of God and of Christ and of the Holy Spirit. Father, I pray that you would please work in us a strong sense of the presence of God. I pray that we would realize that the future is bright But we have a lot of suffering still to go through as a planet and as individuals. Oh Lord, I pray that you give us courage for the facing of that hour. Help us to be willing even this week to speak up. I pray that tomorrow at workplaces when someone asks, what did you do this weekend? That some witnesses here would speak up and say, well I went to church yesterday and we heard a great message from the book of Revelation. Maybe I heard about the book of Revelation and then just get into a conversation. I pray that it would lead towards someone hearing the gospel and having a chance to repent and believe. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification, and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.